If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Thank you for worshiping the Lord with such passion. The byproduct of that is that you are singing to one another, that you are singing to me, that the truths that we are singing are affirmed as we hear each other declare it. Corporate worship is to be corporate so that we can encourage one another and strengthen one another and confirm what one another is singing and praying and thinking. So thank you for doing my heart so well with your singing. The passage we're going to be studying this morning is found in Romans chapter 5, and so I'll begin reading at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, there are many of us here that are, as Micah prayed, struggling to bless the Lord with all our might and soul. We are lackadaisical in our praise. There is a lack of passion that we are feeling. Lord, there are others in this room that are struggling as they look at their own life and they look at their own sin and they are questioning their very salvation. There is a lack of assurance which is a heavy burden. And what should give them joy and what should give them relief only seems to bring greater burden when they don't have it. Lord, wherever we fall in that, I would ask that this passage of Scripture would ignite our heart. It would speak to our heart and remind us of all that you did and what happened on the cross and who you came to save and how much you paid to accomplish that amazing work. Father, may it encourage our hearts. May it build up our souls. May we exalt in God. May we celebrate your goodness. And may there be great joy and may there be great peace that we experience because of the gospel message. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you walked in this morning, hopefully you grabbed the little container of the elements for our communion service that we will, we will be participating in later in the service. 
You see, Paul gave us relatively clear direction on the fact that we should practice the Lord's table on a regular schedule. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it said that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a frequency. There is a, uh, something that we do often. And in so doing, we are to remember and we are to proclaim the Lord's death. Our instruction as a church is to take the bread, which represents Christ's human body, broken for us, and the juice, which signifies his blood, poured out as a sacrifice for our sin and to remember his death on the cross. He said that we are to do it often in remembrance. Some churches do it weekly, some do it monthly, some do it quarterly. I don't think the exact time is delineated in Scripture, but it is to be frequent, it is to be often. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter continued to remind the readers of the gospel of Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross. Even after their salvation, he reminded them again and again and again and again of the cross. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive. So he is preaching the gospel presently, the very same gospel that they received in the past, in which you stand by which you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul continued to preach the gospel. He continued to preach the cross of Christ. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 wrote, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have, established, you have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me that I will also be diligent, that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind." I have reminded you, and I will continue to remind you, and then until the Lord takes me from this world, I will remind you, so that when I'm gone, you will remember. Phrases like, of first importance, remind you, by way of reminder, call these things to mind, speak to the importance of the gospel, and that the need for hearing and remembering the gospel is not simply for unbelievers as the entryway into Christianity, but it is for the believer. It is for their soul. It is for their joy. It is for their righteousness. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel message regularly. But why is it so important for us to, as believers to remember? Did we not hear it? Did we not receive it? 
It's, it's not a question for us if we believe in the reality and the significance of Calvary. And yet, we are commanded to participate in this ordinance regularly and to call to mind the glories of the cross again and again and again. Why is it important for you and I to do this? Let's be frank. I'm not sure if this is actual bread. It's painful. And I have no idea what this liquid red water is. It seems so last century, doesn't it? What are, we, what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? The cross is constantly to be remembered and meditated on because the gospel, Christ's life and death and resurrection are what motivate, empower, and direct our Christian life. The farther our brain gets to the message of the gospel, the more problems we find ourselves in. If this is the gospel, the farther I drift from it, sin comes into my life. Anxiety, joylessness, struggle, emotional struggle. It is what helps us understand God's holiness. We have trouble understanding Isaiah chapter 6 until we see the gospel. Until we understand what, what God had to do, what his son had to accomplish because of the wicked and evilness of sin and because of God's holiness. We, we don't really understand what love is until God demonstrates love for us and provides the model of how we should seek to love one another. Directs us to holiness and a life of righteousness. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 that believers who are not remembering the cross are blind and short-sighted which renders them useless and unfruitful. Blind and short-sighted. The gospel brings great joy to our hearts regardless of our present circumstances. We need the gospel, we need the cross and the story of the cross. We need to remember Christ's death again and again because as our thoughts move away from its glorious truths, we become lackadaisical in our worship. The passion for the Lord begins to go away. We become lackadaisical in our worship and our assurance of salvation wanes. Paul, in concluding the passage before us, stated in verse 11, and not only this, but we exalt in God. The term exalt means to glory in. It means to take pride in, to boast in, to rejoice. It's, a, it's an emotional word. The old King James translated it, we joy in God. The old New American, uh, New American Standard, we celebrate in God. It speaks of such excitement, such rapture that we cannot contain ourselves for the greatness of whatever it is we glory in. 
It is to see that thing held up high and that thing reverenced, cherished, acknowledged. What leads us to exalt? What leads us to rejoice? What leads us to celebrate? Well, verses 6 through 10 is the story of the cross. The message of the cross. The result of meditating the result of preaching, the result of singing, the result of hearing the gospel is that we will exalt and celebrate and find joy in God because of what the gospel communicates. These truths played over and over in our minds, meditated on, sung, recited, preached, should create in us a celebratory spirit. But what warrants such glory? What leads to such an excitement and joy? Paul states that God's love for us at the cross moves one into rejoice in such a way. When we think of the cross, we immediately go to that for God so loved the world. And when we think of the cross, we see verse 8 where God's love is demonstrated to us. In verse 5, the verse that just precedes our text, Paul states that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And in verse 8 of our text, it says that God demonstrates his love toward us. And the word demonstrate means to show, to prove, to establish, or render clear. To cause something to be known by an action. The cross is the demonstration of God's love. Paul wants us to know and experience even more deeply the truth of verse 5, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. And in verse 6 through 11, he is explaining further the truth of God's great love for us as sinners. He is showing why our hope does not disappoint in the first few verses of chapter 5. Why we have peace with God, first few verses of chapter 5. Why we have access into the Father's grace. Why we have joy in our trials. What anchors our hope is the outpouring of God's love. And it is seen in the story of the cross. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to reveal God's sovereign plan for salvation. Paul's argument begins with declaring our guilt and that his wrath is justifiably set upon each and every one of us, both Jew and Gentile. That because of our rejection of his revelation and because of our sinful deeds, we are all guilty before God. But in in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, the, 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 the idea begins to shift from the bad news of the gospel to the good news of the gospel. That that God's righteousness has been manifested and that because of God's sending of His Son Jesus and because of His life, death, and resurrection, we can find peace with God through the justification that comes from Jesus and is ours through faith in Him. That yes, we are guilty, but there is a Savior. And that be through that faith in that Savior, we can have peace with God. That we are not only free from eternal consequences of our sin and rebellion, but we can presently glory 
We can presently celebrate. There is, a, there is a present tense of our salvation that we can relish. Our passage is continuing to show just how our condition has changed. From one who has destined to death and destruction because of our sin to one who has been declared righteous and is the object of God's love. So as we look at God's demonstration or his love demonstrated in this passage, I want us to see three truths that we are to remember as we think of Christ's work on the cross. As we take this bread and as we drink this juice and we do so in remembrance of him, I would encourage you to remember these three things. Three truths to be remembered which lead us to exalt, to glory, to rejoice, to celebrate. When you feel like your assurance is lacking, when you feel lackadaisical, remember these three things. Three truths that will lead us to love God more, to move us from duty to delight, and to have more confidence and assurance of our salvation. Our exaltation of God and our assurance of salvation begins when we, number one, remember what Christ accomplished on the cross. There is to be a, a, a remembrance of the narrative, absolutely. We need to go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we need to read the narrative of the cross. But we also need to remember the theological ramifications of that narrative. What did God accomplish when he died, or when he sent his son to die on the cross? Well, in this paragraph, Paul describes the demonstration of God's love for us by using the same grammatical voice in three verbs. I'm sorry there is a grammar lesson coming. Paul says that we were justified, that we were reconciled, and that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Each of, three, each of these three acts are in the passive voice, meaning that they are actions done to us. The subject is not doing the verb. The verb is being done to the subject. We are justified. We, so we were justified. We were reconciled. We will be saved. Justification and reconciliation have already occurred in the past, and the saving is in reference to what will happen to us in the future. This is how he showed his love. All three happened because of something that Jesus did on our behalf and not something that we did. Not something that we accomplished. Not something that we did for ourselves. Each of these three actions are proof. They are evidences. There is a demonstration of God's love in each of these three. And all three of these are results of the working of Christ on the cross. All of these three are things we should, we should remember as we drink and as we eat. Paul begins in verse 9 by stating that we have been justified by his blood. The Greek word translated justified is a forensic or legal term that speaks of pardon of guilt and the declaration of righteousness. Paul used the root of this word over 30 times in the book of Romans. Justification is more than simply an acquittal. It is 
it is more than, than just a non-guilty verdict. It is a declaration of righteousness and it is of full acceptance. God has not only declared us not guilty, but he has imputed his righteousness upon us when he reckoned Christ's righteousness to our account. So as God looks upon his son in his perfection and says, here's my son who I am well pleased, not only are we no longer guilty, but we are looked upon with that same declaration. This is my son who I am well pleased. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son. This goes back to the, to the argument that Paul was making in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 4, verse 25. But in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, credited as righteousness. Faith recognizes that Christ's death is the payment for all sins, so that not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we are also credited with a righteousness that is not our own, but is the righteousness of Jesus. We are declared to be righteous legally because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. This action is, the, is in the past tense, meaning that it is already done. The declaring has been declared. The imputing has been imputed. This is not something that God is continuing to wait on us and to watch. Let's see how you do next year. Let's see how you do on the next trial. Let's see the next opportunity, how you're going to do. No, the declaring has been declared. The imputing has been imputed. It is done. It is completed. If we were to say that his ruling has been altered and to say that we are now guilty or we no longer are positionally righteous, it would require us to say or believe that God has gone against his word. It would be as if we were saying, God, you're lying about that declaration, that imputation. He promises a past tense. But God also demonstrated his love by reconciling himself. We see this both in verse 11 or 10 and 11. The word translated reconciliation or reconciled moves from the legal to the relational. It literally means to change or exchange, and it was originally a financial term. But when referring to persons, it meant to change from enmity to friendship. You know, Girls in elementary school, when they start recess as friends and they end recess as enemies, or, or they start recess as enemies and then somehow they are reconciled together and they are besties and there's a sleepover a coming. <laughs> Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship to a harmonious state after a dispute. It is the removal of the estrangement between us and God. Because of God's holiness and because of our wickedness, there is an estrangement. Because of God's glorious will that he is seeking to accomplish and because of our selfish will that we're seeking to accomplish, we are at odds with one another. We are enemies of one another. 
But through the death of Christ, God initiated the change in the relationship and we move from alienation to closeness, from enemy to friend, from friend to brother, from brother to son and daughter. The last phrase of verse 11, through whom we, now, we have now received the reconciliation. Again, it goes back to, that, back to that past tense. Again, he's not waiting to become our friend. He's not waiting for us to become his children. No, he, he adopted us before the foundation of the world. But through the death of Christ, we are adopted. We are his children. And that will not change. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 said, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by, it have, by having put to death the enmity. We ceased to be hostile toward God, but he also ceased to be at enmity with us. That's the scary one, isn't it? That we're opposing God, but what's scary is that pre-salvation, he is opposed to us. He is warring against us. But it was through the cross that God put to death the enmity contained in the law of commandments that we had violated so that we now can be reconciled to him. My kids are my kids. My kids have done some things that I'm sure they're not proud of, and I know I wasn't. But they're my kids. That never changes. And we have been reconciled to God, and so much more, we cannot lose that relationship. We have been reconciled to Christ, to God through Christ. But not only are we justified and reconciled, but Paul says that we will be saved from the wrath of God, verse Nine. Again, this is in the passive voice. This salvation is something that will be done to us. But unlike the justification and the reconciliation that has occurred in the past, the two uses of saved in verse 9 and 10 have a future meaning. Our salvation will occur in the future. God will do the saving later. It's important to note that when the Bible refers to salvation, it can be referring to, to three different times, three different tenses, past, present, and future. When salvation is spoken of in the past, it is speaking of what happened at the moment of our salvation, justification, reconciliation, a transaction that has taken place when you come to faith in Christ, in which the power of his shed blood is applied to our life. Our sins are forgiven, our judgment is taken, our condemnation is gone, and the deal is done. Salvation in the past. Salvation in the present is speaking of his sanctifying work in our lives right now. Our growing in Christ. His perfection, our sanctification. We are in the process of being saved from sins 
power. We are, we are growing into Christ's likeness, and he is saving us presently. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, To us who are being saved, it, the cross, is the power of God. But there's a third use of salvation in the Scripture, and that is the future. And as that is what Romans refers, is, is, is speaking of seven out of the eight times that it's used in this letter. It's looking at the future and the final deliverance that will be ours in the day of judgment. Being saved from eternal damnation. Being saved from hell. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness or the righteous judgment of God. Looking forward into the corridors of time to that moment in which he is, he is, he is going to separate the, the, the sheep from the goats where he's going to, to, to eternally punish the wicked. Now, there is a present manifestation of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in which God gives them over to the consequences of their sins. Welcome to the United States of America. We see it clearly in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we are experiencing that now. But that is nothing. The evils of this world are nothing compared to the judgment that is coming, the eternal wrath that will be poured out by God to all those who have rejected His Son, Jesus. And that is what we're, that's what Paul is referring to here. Those that have not been justified by faith, they will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And it is in verses 9 and 10 that Paul is referring to that time that we will be saved on that awful day of judgment. Reconciled, justified, and we will be saved from wrath. Again, all three words are in the passive voice. That means we don't do the justifying. We don't do the reconciliation. We don't do the saving. We are benefiting from God's work through Christ. When we are struggling in our assurance or in glorying or, or when we don't glory in Christ as we should, we must remember what God through Christ accomplished for us and what he has promised to accomplish for us in the future. How he declared us not guilty and bestowed upon us a righteousness that was not our own. That he has adopted us into his family after we were enemies We are now God's sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. How we will be saved from the wrath that we so rightfully deserve. Because of our rebellion. Because of our self-worship. But we benefit from that because of God's amazing son and his righteousness here on earth. We must remember what Christ did on the cross. And while remembering that, we must also, number two, remember for whom Christ died on the cross. The what of the gospel becomes even more amazing when we consider it in the light of the who. Who benefited from it? As we think about the overwhelming glory of God's love for us, Paul directs our attention to who we were when we were saved. 
Paul uses four words to describe who was justified. Four synonyms to describe who was reconciled and who will be saved. And it is not the top of the class. It is not the worthy. It is not the righteous. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, In order to measure the love of God, you have first to go down before you can go up. You do not start on the level and go up. You have to be brought up from the dungeon from a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you will only be measuring half the love of God. You know, one of the reasons we don't marvel at Christ is because we don't really think he saved a wretched person. Thank you for coming and giving me that extra push that I needed because I was a relatively good person. No, if we want to marvel and we want to wonder at the love of God, we need to recognize what the Bible says about you and me. The first term he uses to describe who he loved is the term that he uses to describe is helpless. We see it in verse 6, while we were still helpless. The word means without strength, feeble, and sickly. It's the same word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to make the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. It refers to one incapable of working out any righteousness for themselves and unable to do anything to save themselves. We were totally unable, totally unwilling to do anything to bring about that justification, that reconciliation. We were fine being enemies with God. We were fine being guilty, yet he initiated it. We were totally powerless to save ourselves. God did not love by justifying and reconciling and saving someone who was doing a great job and needed a little bit of help. No, he loved those who were helpless, who were feeble, unable, incompetent. The second word he uses, and he describes you and I, is the ungodly. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. This takes us back to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. The best way to describe ungodly is unlike God. I'm sure there's probably a better way, but I think that's the best. As we think about his character, as we think about his will, it is the very opposite of that. It is the opposite of holiness. It is the opposite of righteousness, the opposite of love and justice and mercy and grace. The word is used to describe those who live without regard for religious beliefs or practice. Paul is identifying that we were not saved based on how, we, how lovely we were or how much we reflected God. No, we reflected something quite opposite than what God is and who he is. And yet, it was that ungodly person that Christ died for. Number three, or thirdly, Paul describes us as sinners. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Sinners are those who practice wickedness, those who have missed the mark. Romans says that for all have missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. Same word in Romans 3.23 as we find here in Romans 5.8. While in the state of being sinners and violators of God's law, Jesus died for us. And finally, Paul used the word enemies to label us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. And I think this is the strongest of the four terms. It means hated, hateful, and hostile. Speaks of someone who is at enmity with God and in opposition to him. Before modern warfare, two armies would meet on a battlefield. One side would line up on this side and the other on this side. And they would march to one another to battle it out. And and the picture here is that God is on this side and we were on that side. We are warring. We are at enmity. This is who he reconciled. It implies active hostility from our side as we seek to rebel against his will and authority in our lives. As we have set ourselves against God and his purposes. And as we seek to steal the glory that is due him. But it also speaks of his hostility toward us. Those that purpose the very opposite of what God wills and what God is. Remember what James 4 Verses 4 through 6 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yet God initiated his saving work while we were at enmity with him, while we were warring against him. These four words speak to the fact that his love is not, nor was it not, ever dependent on our worth or merit. We didn't deserve God's grace now, and as Pastor Micah mentioned in his prayer, we don't deserve God's grace then or now. We are still helpless. We are still ungodly. We are still sinners. We are still enemies in the practical sense of how we stage our life. Who would possibly love such a sinful and ugly group of people? The answer, Jesus. In fact, he died for only one type of person. That type of person. The ungodly sinner. None of us deserves what Jesus in his love did for us. God's gracious love for us is far far higher than any example of human love. And that's Paul's point in verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. In other words, some would possibly base their love and willingness to sacrifice their lives on someone who's righteous or holy, but not Jesus. He came to seek and save the who. And he came to heal the sick. That's who Christ came to save. 
And as you are wallowing in your own sin and and you're struggling with the assurance of salvation, you're going, there is no way that God could love me. Well, he loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were an enemy. He loved you when you were ungodly. He loved you when you were helpless. And he still loves you because it wasn't you. It was him. Even now, as we imperfectly walk this Christian life, we are still needy. We don't perfectly reflect God. We break his laws and set ourselves and our wills against his, yet his mercy and love are more. When we struggle with assurance or we don't seem to glory in Christ, it is because our eyes are on who we are and what we've done rather than on him and what he has accomplished. We must remember the what, we must remember the who, and thirdly, we must remember how much Christ paid on the cross. We must remember the how. Christ accomplished all of this through his death on the cross. The word died is repeated multiple times in this passage. We see it in verse 6. We see it twice in verse 7. Again in verse 8. Besides the word died, Paul uses the word blood in verse 8, which is, which is a figurative expression of the the violent death, his atoning sacrifice and his sacrificial death. In verse 10, he furthers his point by using the word death. Death, dying, blood. He's, he's, He's making a point here. He's wanting us to recognize how this was all accomplished. How did did these types of people get adopted? How, How did these types of people get forgiven? How did these types of people get saved? Through death, 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 death. Our justification, our reconciliation, our salvation from wrath was not free. It was given freely, but it was not free. It came at a great cost. And the price of that salvation was his death. He died to accomplish our salvation. Jesus paid a very high price for our salvation. It's the price of his blood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In other words, Jesus didn't pay a small insignificant price. One that he wouldn't mind if what he bought was lost or taken away from him. He paid with an infinite price. One that only the Son of God could pay. And we see in 1 Peter 1 that we were not redeemed by something corruptible, but by his precious blood. We were redeemed, and that's a a term that, 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 that denotes purchase. We were purchased by his blood. The blood was the payment. The price for your freedom from sin and death was the blood of Christ. The price for paying our debt was the Lamb of God. The price for adoption was the blood of Christ. The price of being saved from well-deserved wrath was the blood of God's only begotten Son. Jesus redeemed us with His blood. We had He had to be our substitute because the wages of sin is what? Death. 
Jesus, as the justifier, had to bear the horrible wrath of God through death so that God would fully be just in dealing with the wickedness of sin and fully be loving in the granting of forgiveness. What he purchased was with such a high price, he is not going to lose it. My wife and I, in the last few years, have left two items at a hotel when we left. One were a pair of flip-flops, and the other was someone's wedding ring. I'm not going to say who, but it wasn't mine. (laughs) Which item do you think we went back to receive? The $4 Old Navy uh, flip-flops or the wedding ring? The cost of the wedding ring drew our love and commitment to never letting it go. The cost of your justification, the cost of your reconciliation, the cost of your salvation is the very blood of Christ. He will never let you go. The fact that he paid so much reminds us why our hope of heaven will not disappoint And what anchors that hope is the realization that God poured out his love upon us. As we conclude our time together in this passage and begin to look forward to our time around Christ's table, notice again what Paul says at the beginning of verse 11. And not only this, not only the future that you have that God will save you from the wrath, and not only the, the past, what God has saved you, he, he justified you and he reconciled you, but we also exult now in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' work on the cross impacted our past and our present and our future. The benefit of the cross is that we glory, we rejoice, we celebrate this amazing truth, this amazing doctrine. If you understand this truth, you've got to exalt in God. If you don't understand or are not ruminating in this sweet truth, then you're probably lacking in salvation. That's probably the reason that you do not feel that enthusiasm of the Lord is that you have walked away from the gospel. It has become that entryway to salvation, but not the necessity of those that are saved. Those who recognize that they've been justified by Christ's blood, reconciled to God through the death of his son, and will be saved from God's wrath on the last day, when that is what is preached in our own heads, when that is what is sung by our own tongues, when that is what we talk about in our homes and with one another, then we will exalt in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close... What have you and I been meditating on recently? Have we spent more time this week allowing us to think and wallow in the great wickedness of our sin? In the sin of our thoughts and our actions and our words? Or in what he did? And to whom he did it? And how he accomplished it? Have we spent time marveling at the news that we are not just not guilty, but we are righteous? 
Have we spent time pondering the reality of hell and at the amazing realization that while we deserve to go there, we are saved from this fate? And have we spent time meditating on the marvelous doctrine found in the lyrics of that song, Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And then the beginning of verse 2 says, By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. As we come to the table this morning, may we remember, may we meditate, may we ponder on the glorious truths of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this table that is before us. Thank you that as we meditate on the cross, as we sing verbally or we sing internally the words of the songs, that we would remember and declare your son's death until he comes. Father, may it May we be renewed in our appreciation of all that has happened. May we remember just who we are and who you came to save. May we remember that we are innocent, declared innocent. We are given a new righteousness. We are seated at your table. Father, we are so thankful for the fact that your son emptied himself and left the glories of heaven, became a babe, grew up, and in all ways was righteous and holy and perfect and obedient and paid the penalty for sinful man. And through that one man, Lord, we can receive righteousness. May that be what we are meditating and thinking about as we sing and as we take this bread and drink this cup. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.